Hi, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, I'm joined by Tongi Caitlin and Kate Smage, senior partners at McKinsey. At our recent CFO forum in London, Tongi and Kate talked about digital disruptions, what makes them challenging, and how CFOs can rise to the challenge. Both sat down with me to discuss their session uh, and the specific actions that CFOs and other executives can take to best respond to digital disruption. Tongi is based in our Boston office and is a leader in our digital and strategy and corporate finance practices, while Kate is based in London and a leader in our digital and retail practices. Tongi and Kate, thanks for joining us. Tongi, let's start with you. In your discussion today, you talked about the fact that during past disruptions, a large number, um, in fact, the large majority of incumbent companies didn't actually survive. Is the current digital disruption or the current disruption around digital technology going to be equally grim? Well, you're correct. The topic of disruption is not new. Actually, if you look back in humankind, there are many, many instances of significant disruptions. And you're correct that on average, typically, when you look at the incumbents before the disruptions and those that succeed uh, following the disruptions, about 80% of them are no longer there. And that has been true across geographies and types of disruptions. We are still in the very, very early days of the digital disruptions, and so I don't have the crystal ball. But we did an interesting survey just two years ago asking 2,500 CEOs and CFOs whether they felt that with their current strategies and business models, they will be able to maintain the current level of performance over the next three years. 92% of the respondents did not have that level of confidence. Kay, what are some of the best ways incumbents can make it through to the other side? Yes, I think we've got a few different themes that we would highlight as almost pitfalls to avoid. And the first of those really is around getting clear on the definition of digital. Because it doesn't matter how many people you ask, everyone has a very different uh, definition. So someone might say, hey, that's what the IT guys used to do. It's just a different version of it. Some might say, you know, lean towards more digital marketing. Some might talk all about kind of customer experience and omni-channel experience and so on. Now that's fine on one level, but when you translate that into the boardroom, you end up with um, a complete misalignment and lots of people pulling in slightly different directions in terms of what the objective function of digital is for them. Typically, CFOs are responsible for things like reporting and analytics. What role do they have to play in terms of making that definition of digital and promulgating it through an organization? Well, often I think they set the tone on it. Because ultimately, you know, when you think about planning processes and so on, it's the CFO who is asking the questions about where growth is going to come from and how to think about it relative to last year. But I think the more progressive of CFOs are also asking those provocative questions to say, you know, how aligned really are we? And if I think that I'm managing my business plan on this definition of digital, well, does the commercial officer and the traders and the ops guy, do they all agree with that? Or are we pulling in different directions? It has to be a top-down approach. I think you need to have full alignment of the full suite of executive about their common definition of digital, and that requires them having the dialogue among themselves. Then they need to articulate it in a simple manner that the entire organizations can rally around and pursue, typically deploy their digital strategies or digitize their businesses in waves, starting from smaller places and expanding. About the role of the CFO, there are maybe two lessons that are worth really emphasizing. First one, CFOs went to business schools and understand macroeconomics extremely well. 
what's new with digital is the marginal cost is zero. With digital, you can instantly and freely, as you said, replicate perfectly a service or an offering. It leads to massive shifts in the supply and demand curves. It means that economies of scale take a whole new proportions, which leads to the rise of ecosystems. And so I think the first role of the CEO is to explain to the business leaders the economics of their business and how digital is changing that. It is quite dramatic. You ask yourself very, very difficult questions once your marginal cost is zero. And then I think the second one is congruence. Uh, you said if there are too many definitions of digital, how much money do we spend on digital? What, what is the answer and how do we report on the effectiveness of our digital uh, effort? And is that congruent with what we are trying to accomplish? So I think the role of the CFO becomes, you know, the evangelist for people to understand this digital economy and then the architect for how all the pieces are coming together in a way that you can actually measure the performance. You mentioned the economics of digital. What are some of the implications for a company as they move from a non-digital to a digital world in terms of how one plans as a CFO and also how to just run a business and set a strategy that recognizes these very different economics? We've looked at few thousand companies uh, over the last couple of years, and we tried to separate the winners from the losers and those that were affected by digital. And we got three or four lessons about the economics of digital. The first one is the fact that many companies see digital as a massive opportunity. They fail to recognize that there is a threat associated with the fact that a big part of the value creation actually accrues to the customer much more than to themselves. Think about all those industries where you have intermediaries. Think about all those places where there was no price transparency. Think about all those products and services that we used to bundle. All of those are going away with digital. And so those profit pools are being allocated to the customer, not to the incumbent. And that requires you to ask yourself very, very different questions. Not only where is the growth opportunity, but what part of my business am I at the risk of losing? The second thing is that that value pool that is now moving to the customer is no longer distributed equally among the incumbents. And what we tend to see in aggregation towards fewer winners, we call it the winner's take all economy. And the implication it has for the CFO is a strategy where you say, I'm just going to move from number nine to number eight in terms of rank is just committing suicide, when at the end of the day, there will only be two or three big winners. And then thirdly, it turns out that first movers have an advantage in digital. They learn more and faster. And again, that leads to the CFO being willing to lean in more quickly, and then to ask a set of questions about how quickly are we going to learn, and at that point, double down on the bet if we find out that it's paying out. We are living in a world where the boundaries of industries are becoming meaningless with the rise of ecosystems. And therefore, there's a new set of strategic questions that you need to ask. How do you expand yourself beyond your industry? And what are the type of partnerships and M&As that are required to achieve that expansion, which once again put the spotlight on the CFO? Does being a first mover also help in terms of either having a more prominent role in one of these ecosystems? or even starting an ecosystem oneself? Yeah, for sure. And, and I think it's back to what Tange was saying about the ability to learn as fast as you possibly can, right? And what we often see is the, the people who are going out as first movers are often on, you know, version three, four, four or five of whatever they're trying to do before the people, no matter how fast followers they are, have come up with the version one of the Me Too proposition. And so in a world where you're cycling at that kind of rate, it's no wonder that they are typically the leaders in that. I think the other point is there are only so many partnerships to be made within these ecosystems. 
And so if you're not fast out of the blocks in figuring out, you know, what your role within that ecosystem and also who the right partners are, well, someone else is going to go and grab that land, as it were. And so I think there's lots of reasons why, you know, being out in front or at least a very, very fast follower uh, makes a huge difference in this space. You also talk in your presentation about the duality of digital. Can you share some of the pitfalls of that duality? Maybe say a little bit more about how the duality of digital could lead to a strategic misfire, for example. Yeah. The real challenge with this is it's, it's really easy to sort of say, go away and figure out an entirely new business model and disrupt your category and disrupt your industry and then figure out what to do after lunch. But, but actually, it's really tricky because you've got businesses that are need to still maintain the current business. And, and particularly as a lead incumbent or whatever, you're probably the largest in the market. So you're also controlling the market. And just forgetting that core business is a pretty difficult rhetoric to, to give to investors. But finding out where the right balance is between how much time, investment, you know, resource do I put against the core business versus how much time, resource, investment do I put on the, the new stuff, the innovative models, et cetera. That's the real crux and the real challenge. I don't think any of us has the perfect answer, but it is about an ongoing dialogue, actually often fueled by the CFO, as to have we got the mix right? And it might be that you start out with it's you know, 80% on the core business and 20% on, the, on, on that, but then you spot something that's really got some fuel to fire and you upweight this one. And so while no one has the perfect answer, I do believe it is about always asking the question about how are we doing on duality? Have we put our money where our mouth is? Because I see a lot of people talk about duality and say, yeah, we're, we're spending time on this. And when you look at the actual capital allocation and the resource allocation, it doesn't match. And then as I say, keeping that open dialogue to say, how do I shift that mix now? What do I now know that I didn't know six months ago or even frankly three weeks ago that might shift the balance one way or another? So talking about that duality and the notion of new businesses, what percent for incumbents are being driven by, say, digital M&A activity versus starting the new businesses up themselves? And can you talk a little bit more about how digital M&A might differ from non-digital acquisitions that uh, many folks have experience in executing. So we have, once again, uh, looked back at companies that seem to be outperforming their peers by investing in digital. And what we found are a number of interesting artifacts. The first one is they tend to do a lot more M&A than uh, the traditional incumbents. Second, the mix of M&A that they are doing is also different in itself, where you start to see capability-based M&A, so not trying to expand into new markets or new products, but just acquire talent, acquire competencies. It could be acquire hire, it could be access to certain type of, of technologies. So to your question, you tend to see M&A being a bigger lever and the type of M&A being different. The second thing that we've observed is in where they are deploying their existing talent and investments, it is less about the digitizations of their existing product and services. It's about launching new digital product and services. So there was another failure mode um, for digital strategies that you'd shared previously around incrementalism that you alluded to earlier. Can you describe that a little bit more and why it's such a big problem for incumbents? So I think one of the challenges with the notion of incrementalism around this is if you actually put yourself in the shoes of the CFO or the, or the CEO, um, it's really easy to see why there's a short-termist notion here, right? We know that CEO tenures are going down. We know that uh, the markets are getting no more patient with results. 
But we also know that digital transformation takes time. Tongas talks about being in just the first step, and these are often decades long to really see the full impact. And so it's not surprising that there's a level of incrementalism around that because it's safe, it's risk averse, it's what actually my incentive plan tells me to do in the next six months. But it is a real challenge for being sufficiently bold around shifting the investment levels and shifting the level of focus to really uh, think differently. Some of our most recent research that's come out around this talks not only about how much more adaptable CFOs and CEOs are in terms of what they're doing, but also when they make shifts, that shift is likely to be two times greater for the winners than it is for those that are, are lagging behind. Tangi, you also just recently published an article on what um, you called the drumbeat of digital and how digital enterprises move much more quickly and more forcefully. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that means, again, for an incumbent that's trying to figure out how they can succeed in the digital world? Yes, and we're very excited about that, that research. Uh, what we basically have done is we have asked about 3,000 companies to explain to us how they were running their day-to-day -day operations. What are the type of management meetings that they have? What frequency? What is the nature of the decisions? And equally importantly, what is the outcome of the decision? So if you decide to redeploy talent, you know, uh, which talent, in what proportion, if you decide to make investment, what it is. Um, and then we looked at the respondents, and then we correlated their response with their performance relative to their peers uh, uh, within and across industries. And two themes appeared very, very strongly. The contrast was super stark. The first one is, you know, the, the winners move much faster, and it's across all decisions. It's not that it's only the talent redeployment, it's also on the capital deployment, it's about the test and learn, it's about all sorts of decisions where remarkably it was just four times faster. Annual decisions, quarterly, quarterly, monthly, monthly, weekly. Um, so that was a really stark contrast. What is it that allows those organizations to be four times faster at right. everything? And the second thing that was also interesting is when they decide to make a move, when they decide to make M&A, when they decide to relocate talent, the magnitude of that move is twice bigger than a traditional incumbent. Uh, and again, data very, very conclusive and very strong. So there's something to be learned, not only about the role of the CFO in asking the right questions, etc., but about the rewarding of this organization to be able to do what they do today, faster and bolder. And so I hope people read the article. I think it's a, it's a good one. So how does a CFO really make this happen, both in their organization, their finance organization, and throughout the organization? So it's, you know, just reducing cycle times of budgets is not something you can necessarily wave a magic wand. Um, is it instituting agile within the budgeting process? But what are some of the things that you've seen incumbents do successfully to match the drumbeat, both within a finance organization and across an organization? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just a, a choice at the start about am I, am I going to transform the finance function, right. not just transform the business. So we see a lot of people actually trying to apply what they're seeing happen in the technology space, mm -hmm. whether it's agile and, and, and other method methodologies, to their own financial planning process and saying, well, for us to work with the technology teams in that way, we also have to change the way that we think about investment horizons, the way that we think about um, capital um, release uh, over time. And also the way that I, as the CFO, will ask the questions around what success looks like. 
uh, and to redefine that. So first, I think it is about a, a different choice. And then I think there are enough models out there now where we're seeing um, uh, companies move away from that annual planning cycle. There's still an element of annual, but you're not as reliant on it. And the, the sort of notion of that annual planning cycle is, is not the sort of last year plus or minus X percent notion of it. It's a genuine step back and rethink about you know, what the, the horizon needs to be. So I think that's one thing. The second thing I've seen people do is this notion of short term versus long term. So, um, yes, I need to come up with the annual, you know, the annual numbers and so on, because the city needs to see them, et cetera. And yes, I need a three-year plan, right? Some it's three years, some it's five years. But I need that mid-term horizon on where I'm really trying to go and, and how the business evolves in that. But what I also see people do is also take the 10-year or 10-year plus horizon as well and say, if I take that version of what we're going to be, what our industry is going to look like and how we're going to uh, function, and I play it back to today, are the things that I just wouldn't do that I've got in my current plan if I was really right. gunning towards that 10-year version? 10-year version of, of, um, uh, of the company. And that's often a really good sort of way of shining light to say, have I been incremental again? Um, and I've yet to be in one of those planning processes where something of that 10-year version doesn't make everybody stop in their tracks and go, oof, we missed that. I would agree. And the only thing I can um, suggest is to be able to do both. You're going to need to make resources much more fungible in your organization mm -hmm. as a CFO. So if you want to redeploy talent, and talent is defined by belonging to a business unit, you have no redeployment um, similar with capital. Um, so this notion of making your operations and your assets very fungible for redeployment is critical. That's big rewarding. The second is you need to be following the money. So very often as a CFO, you have budgets. And the budgets that are aligned with the strategy, which is, you know, I want to transform an end-to-end -end journey, right? And you are managing still your distribution versus your marketing versus... Exactly. And, and I think the rewarding of how you report the, f the real performance of the organizations so that you can now make the trade-off in redeploying those resources along dimensions that are digitally-centric, mm. customer journey, core processes becomes critical. We've seen increasingly organizations, for instance, combine their operational budgets with their technology budgets and what, they, what happens oftentimes when they do that is they start spending a lot more on technology because they can get a lot more cost out of yeah. operations. Right. Really hard to do when you see exactly. IT as a cost center whose task is to reduce, Always. reduce the spend. So there is a big rewarding of um, um, the management of the asset that the CFO is responsible for to be able to do both the short-term build bets and the long-term uh, elements. And the last thing is, I think CFOs used to be asking deterministic questions. You know, tell me how much it's going to cost, or you know, tell me how many market share, point of market share I'm going to gain, or you know, what's going to happen to my margins. Increasingly, they also need to ask, what is it that we are going to learn? So I give you this money. What are you going to test? How are we going to measure whether a month from now mm. the lessons are suggesting we should spend more money there? And those are very different type of questions and metrics, and I think that there is a risk killing of the CFO and last thing I would say is, you know, if the CFO doesn't have technology, don't even start. And so there is a component for the CFO of getting back to, to school to be able to have the intelligent conversation with his peer about what technology can and cannot do. And actually on that as well, I think that's the other element of sort of transversal themes that a CFO can drive as well. Because when they are seeing every part of the business as part of the, the planning cycle, however mm -hmm. short that now is, they can also ask the questions around, well, let's take a, a theme like blockchain or IoT. 
And if they ask the same question of every single part of the business they're seeing, you then start to build up a picture of, well, actually, what is our approach to IoT? And how are we thinking about that in the operations versus the technology group versus commercial? So I think they're often also the only people that can, apart from maybe the CEO, who can really ask those transversal, transversal questions. As an incumbent, if you're competing against pure play digitals that don't care about profit, yet you still need to keep your investors happy with regular and growing profits, what do you do? How, what do you recommend to your clients as to how to handle that? It's a really, really challenging question. Uh, I don't know that many of the answers. I think you need to have the courage to have the conversation with your investor on two fronts. The first one is what you could lose if you were not making those investments. Too often you try to convince your investor that there's a great, great pot of gold 10 years out and to go after without having the courage to say, you know, I'm being attacked. Those are the profit pools. Those are the pain points in my customer experience that those people are going after. And if I don't invest a lot of money, that profit pool is going away. So the first one is being willing to talk about the negative, not only about the positive. I think the second is laying out a roadmap and a journey against this duality of digitizing the existing business versus building the new ones, where the investors feel that he's brought along or she's brought along and can understand the milestone and track the progress. Turns out that when it's done properly, actually, the investors might be willing to give you the credit for the end of the journey early on, which includes the opportunity for you to invest even more and faster. I think the other thing, just to sort of build on that, a common mistake by incumbents is that they see themselves as this sort of profit pool shrinking underdog almost uh, in, a, in a disruptive world. And actually, I just don't think it's true in most sectors because they're the ones with the brand. They're the ones with the customers. They're the ones with so much sort of built up equity, if you like, right? Um, and a resurgent incumbent is significantly more damaging in your sector than you know, many of the, the digital attackers, right? But it's very easy to, to sort of think about the disruption and just focus on, well, what's that guy or girl in the, uh, you know, in the, in the garage in San Francisco going to do to me and how are they going to eat my lunch? Whereas actually they should be saying, well, what's my biggest competitor doing? And if they get their act together fast enough, I'm in, I'm in real trouble. And so if you bring that back to your notion of, you know, what about those people that don't care about profit? Well, what about your other people that do care about profit and the damage that they can do to you? Or indeed, frankly, the damage you could do to that, to that industry. So back to this notion of learning fast, those that do move ahead quickly are learning quickly enough and changing the customer experience well enough that actually they can be disruptive in their own sector. So it sounds like a CFO should also be paying close attention to their competitors' forays into digital and almost have sort of a sensing mechanism to see when those competitors are making those moves. Do you have any tips on how to do that really effectively? Anything that you've done with clients to help them better identify and predict when competitors are making those steps? So there are a few ideas, uh, maybe a little broader than your question, Tran, which is, you know, how do you make sure that you're the first one doing the, the move and the right move? The first one is hacking your own business. Try to put yourself in the shoes of your competitors and what would you do to go after your customer, after your profit pool? It's very enlightening. Bring your customer into the room and ask them what they would do. And it's actually shocking at the number of CXOs who have never spoken to a single one of their customers, right? Bring some of your younger high potential people into the room as well, because it's really easy to get groupthink around the management table. 
But having somebody who just doesn't see the world in the same way that you see it gives that independence of thought or diversity of thought, if you like. You're exactly right. Exactly right. Follow the money and follow the talent. So there's a lot of funding going into uh, through corporate venture capital or other into new areas, understand the thesis that others have and where they are putting their chips. And talent-wise, no, it's very easy to map out the talent of your competitors or tech players and see where they are migrating. A uh, classic example of Apple having hired you know, dozens of the best engineers from some of the car manufacturers years ago. You can easily track that through LinkedIn and you understand what's going at play there. So I think that the methodology for competitive intelligence is becoming a lot more analytically driven uh, and sophisticated. Kate, Tangi, thank you very much for taking the time with us today. We really appreciate it. And thank you all to our listeners for joining us as well. A transcript of this podcast will be posted on our practice page on McKinsey.com, where you can also find links to our previous episodes and related materials. If you'd like to receive future updates with our latest insights, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy. Connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance, or sign up for email alerts on our practice page on McKinsey.com. We look forward to having you join us on our next podcast, Inside the Strategy Room.